Hello and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today I'm speaking with Brian Selznick to talk about his new book, The Marvels. It's the third in what's almost become a series of category-defying books, told as much through artwork as through text. First, there was The Invention of Hugo Cabret, which won the Caldecott Medal and went on to become the Oscar-winning film Hugo, directed by Martin Scorsese. That book was followed in 2011 by Wonderstruck, and The Marvels is being published in September by Scholastic Press, which is sponsoring this podcast. There are two tracks to the story of The Marvels. The first, told entirely through Selznick's black-and-white images, opens in 1766 and follows a family of London actors through several generations. The second part of the story takes place in London of the 20th century, 1990 to be exact, and introduces a runaway boy named Joseph, who takes refuge with his uncle, who meticulously maintains his house in the manner of an 18th century home. Thank you for speaking with me, Brian. Oh, thanks. I'm so happy to be talking with you. So I think I first heard you speak about this book uh, this past spring back at BEA, and I think you had said that learning about some of the connections between theater and sailing was kind of one of the original sparks for the book. Is that at all right? Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine named Harry Lloyd, who's a really wonderful actor, had taken me backstage at the Royal Haymarket in London, which is a theater where he had performed. And we went up into the rigging, and he told me while we were up in the rigging, surrounded by all these ropes and wood beams, that the original theaters from the 18th century were built and rigged by a lot of sailors who came in from the sea because they weren't afraid of heights and they knew how to use ropes. And so the words that we have today in the theater, like rigging and deck and crew, all come from the sea. And as soon as he said that, I had this vision of a kid on a ship in the 18th century coming to London to help build one of these theaters. And that's a part of where one of the threads began for the book. And theater and or filmmaking basically play roles in all three of these books, Hugo, Wonderstruck, and, and now The Marvels. Aside from what feels like an evident interest in exploring visual storytelling in the books, you know, why do you think you tend to return to, to these elements? Uh, you know, I've always loved the cinema, and I'm distantly related to David O. Selznick, who produced Gone with the Wind and King Kong. And so I grew up going to my grandmother's house. He had died before I was born, but her house was filled with books about him. And when I watched these movies as a kid, I always loved seeing my last name at the beginning and end of the, of the films. And so I think there had always been a somewhat personal connection to this idea that my family, though distantly, were filmmakers. And I think, especially when I was working on Hugo, discovering and exploring the connection between the way picture books tell stories and the way cinema tells its stories, um, which are both mostly visual, really started getting me very excited. And so the, the connection with movies and performance kept, uh, kept reappearing. To get back to this book, you know, I feel like we have to talk, of course, about the real-life Dennis Severs house on which mm. Joseph's uncle's home is based in the book. You've been there several times? Yeah, I've been there several times. I've been there probably dozens and dozens of times at this point. And it's this really amazing and very strange house in Spitalfields, an area of London that used to be very derelict, although now it's uh, really being overdeveloped because it's been discovered. But for a very long time, it was this almost abandoned uh, area of London. Uh, artists started moving in because it was cheap. And 
uh, back in the 70s, a young man from California named Dennis Seavers he had fallen in love with the idea of England back when he was a kid in California from reading books and looking at photographs and paintings. And so he bought this house, a derelict house, from the 18th century and restored it so that now when you go to the house, when you enter the Dennis Seavers house, it is kept as if the people in the house are still alive. And so every time you walk into one of the rooms, it's as if they've just stepped out. So in most house museums, uh, you know, even if it's someone's you know, personal house, like everything is arranged like it's in a museum and there's often velvet ropes on the chairs so that you know not to sit down. But in the Dennis Seavers house, there's laundry on the floor, there's half-eaten food on the table, there's hot tea in the, in the teacups, and there's a real sense of life. And I know that the first time I ever went to the Dennis Seavers house, a friend of mine had recommended it when my husband and I were going on a trip to London because she thought we would like it. The first time I went, I had probably the uncanniest feeling of having actually fallen back in time. And, you know, you, we see movies that are set in other time periods and you get little glimpses of what it might have been like to have been alive at a time other than the one that you're in. But being in the house and he, there's also uh, uh, speakers in the walls that are hidden that have uh, sound effects. And so you can hear people talking in other rooms and footsteps upstairs and horse and carriages coming down the street and church bells ringing down by the river. And so suddenly you're not just looking at a movie that might be set in another time period or holding a book where you're reading about another time period. You're fully immersed. You're experiencing all of the sensations that someone living in 1780 or uh, 1890, the house covers uh, about 100 years of time, I think, as you walk through it. And you have this sense that you are present in their present. And it's, it's really wonderful. Well, you know, something as special and specific and singular as a house like that makes me think a little bit about another sort of thread that seems to run through the recent books. You know, in them you have orphans and runaways and outsiders and people who are trying to make these connections and find family in ways that are sort of on the outskirts of maybe what's considered the mainstream. Why do you think you return to those kinds of stories? You know, I think there's a reason that orphans are such a constant theme through literature and especially children's literature. This this idea that a, a, a child is on on his or her own, that they are able to and have to make all of their decisions themselves and keep and essentially keep themselves alive, I think is a very powerful one. And, it, and it's a metaphor for what everybody, you know, for the most part ends up doing in, in their life where you will eventually leave home, you'll eventually form a new family, you'll eventually bring friends around you, people who you fall in love with, and and create a new family. And so I think part of what the interest for me with with these particular stories was exploring those ideas in a parallel track in terms of like the, the general arc of the story, which goes from when you're a child up through when you're a grown-up. But by exploring it all through the eyes of a child and seeing how the child gathers a, a new family around them, I think is something that is very 
powerful for me and hopefully for for kids as well. And I think growing up gay, I always felt a little bit, you know, my family was great and, you know, I grew up a happy and suburban New Jersey, but you're, you're always sort of aware that you're kind of, especially having grown up in the seventies, you know, there was a little sense of being something other than what everyone else seemed to be. And I think that sense of being on the outside even while experiencing things that were very much, you know, quote unquote, on the inside in terms of, you know, going to school and, you know, having a a happy family, there's this double track that sometimes can develop. And so I think part of that is what is being explored as well. Although honestly, like none of it is conscious. It's like, I, you know, when I'm putting together a story, it's because something sparks my imagination, whether it's the rigging in the theater, like we talked about, or whether it's discovering that the filmmaker George Melies had a collection of uh, automatons that were destroyed and thrown away at the end of his life and imagining a kid finding one of those broken machines. I don't, I don't sit down to tell a story about an idea or about a theme, I sit down to write a story about a kid who has something happen to them. And then the, the, the themes develop out of the plot. And in, f- in fact, I didn't even know that Hugo was about making your own family until after the book was finished. I mean, I, obviously I knew that happened because I made it happen for Hugo and I wanted him to be safe and happy at the end. But it wasn't until a reader came up to me and said that they loved that Hugo was actually about the power and the importance of making your own family that I realized that is what it was about. I was like, oh my gosh, I think you're right. And I said to that person that I'm from now on going to say that that was my intention, <laughs> that that's what, I, that's what I meant to do. And, uh, you know, and then with Wonderstruck, those, those themes uh, carry through in other ways. And I think they find a very powerful home in what I discovered in the Dennis Seavers house and then ultimately what I tried to do with the Marvels. And as far as, you know, the form of these books and the way you're, you know, experimenting with visual storytelling and that sort of thing, do you feel like it's been a progression? Do you feel like you've continued to hone or develop or play with those elements from one book to the next? Yeah, a long time ago, I was asked by someone if I thought my work was getting better and my, this was in this period of time when I was making books that went out of print very quickly and nobody was really reading them. And my first book had done well, but then for the next like five years, a lot of books that I made sort of disappeared. But I was m- making books that I really liked, but I looked at them and I thought to myself, I can't say that any of these books are better than my first book, which was The Houdini Box, which, which I still really love. And so I tried to make a goal for myself that every book I made would somehow be better in some fashion or learn from what I had done previously and be different than what I had done previously. And, it, and, and it's not something that I leave for other people to tell me whether or not something is better or not better. And, I, and you know, that's not even really how I want people to think about my work. But for myself, I was conscious with every book of trying to do something new and taking everything I'd learned and growing with it. And so when I made Hugo, I was at this, many years had passed since that moment in time I had described and things were going very well with, with my career and I was making books I really loved, but I, I sort of hit a little bit of a, a rut and I stopped working for about six months and Hugo grew out of the, this time period where I wasn't working. And it, it was this very 
very weird idea I had about a kid who is, you know, obsessed with French silent movies and automatons and all of these things that are generally not subjects that children today are interested in. But I was interested in the story and I was, you know, we were talking earlier about cinema and my family connection to it and the connection between film and picture books. And some of what I started thinking about when I started working on Hugo was figuring out whether or not you could make a 550-page picture book. And, you know, I've always deeply loved Where the Wild Things Are, as as so many people have uh, ever since it's come out. And, you know, you get to the wild rumpus where there's no more text and they're full-page bleeds and you move through those pictures at whatever pace you want as the reader and you fill in what's happening because there's no, there's no text. And so Hugo, in a way, is a book that has dozens and dozens of wild rumpuses running throughout the book that help propel the narrative forward. And it was really hard to make. Like when I finished Hugo, I was so relieved. I felt very proud of it. By the time I was done, I didn't know if anybody would read it, but I knew that I had made the book I wanted to make. And it was something I had not done before. Something specifically, I, I, I don't even know if I had even seen a book quite like it, but I knew that it told the story the way that I wanted to tell it. And so when I started making Wonderstruck, I knew right away I couldn't repeat what I had done with Hugo So my idea for Wonderstruck began structurally. I thought, even before I had a plot or a character or anything, I thought, what if I tell two separate stories, one with words and one with pictures, and then weave those stories together, and Wonderstruck grew out of that. And so when I began the Marvels, I knew, again, that the structure would need to be different, but I didn't know what that structure would be. But as these ideas began to accumulate and I visited the Dennis Seavers house and I went backstage with Harry at the Royal Haymarket and I started thinking about the theater and I started thinking about the way the plot was going to develop, this structure revealed itself. Like, I guess I just kind of became aware that this was how the Marvels was going to have to be structured with 400 pages of pictures that tell five generations of a single family from 1766 to 1900. And then it was going to stop. And then there was going to be 200 pages of text that told a completely separate story. And eventually, of course, the two stories will hopefully come together. But it was scary because it's a weird way to structure a book. Hopefully, you get really into this picture narrative And then the brakes get slammed and suddenly you're thrown almost 100 years into the future and the way the entire rest of the book is told changes. And so I I realized that one of the challenges was going to have to be that the narrative was going to have to justify the structure. And so that that was part of what I was uh, struggling with as I was making the book. But each of these books, while experimenting with with form, ultimately, yeah, I do feel are are related in different ways. And finally, I guess, do you feel like you still have room to uh, to grow and experiment and, you know, continue to play with these sort of ideas? <laughs> I really, really wanted this to be a trilogy. Like, I felt like after I had this third idea, because I don't get a lot of ideas, I get about one idea every five years. 
the good thing is that my ideas take about five years to make. So, you know, these books take about, well, they, well three, four years. Like my, the, the actual work on the book takes about three years in terms of creating it. Then there's a year, uh, you know, where we're working very hard at Scholastic to get the book ready for publication and we're designing it and getting everything ready. And then a year from there before it comes out. And so when I was working on the Marvels and I was realizing that it was going to be connected in, in these different ways to Hugo and Wonderstruck, I liked the idea that I could say this was a, a, a trilogy. But I did just get one more idea. So, <laughs> Ahead of schedule. <laughs> so I think it might be the fourth book in the trilogy. I always like when people say, you know, it's, it's the fourth book in the trilogy. But I think that in certain ways, Hugo, Wonderstruck, and the Marvels are a complete unit. They're a thing that is meant to go together. And this, this idea, if it does actually happen, I think will be a little bit like their stepchild. We'll see that it'll be related to them. Because the great thing about books is that there's never any limit to what you can do in them. You know, it, that's one of the reasons I love being a bookmaker and saying that I'm a bookmaker. People ask me if I think I'm an illustrator or a writer. I, I think I'm a bookmaker. And, and that's what's really thrilling to me is, is, is exploring all the possibilities. So I don't feel like there's ever a point where anybody will come to the end of what books can do. And so, I, and, I, and I already know that if this fourth book does happen, that it will be structurally very different than these three previous ones. So I guess the answer to your question is no. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, uh, you know, in the meantime, congratulations again on the Marvels, and uh, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you. It was really, really great to talk to you. Uh, once again, I've been speaking with Brian Selznick, whose latest book, The Marvels, is being published in September by Scholastic Press. Thank you for listening to PW KidsCast. 